Welcome to Divergent Unicorns, a podcast created to provide actionable steps to people that have been typically underrepresented in the venture and startup landscape. I'm your host, Behavia Stewart. And I'm your host, Ema Essien. We are both HBCU VC fellows and have experience in venture capital. On this episode, we have Colin Wallace. Colin is the CEO of Eatkey, which is a company helping minimize restaurants' problems by connecting restaurant applications to drive more orders and better customer experiences. Colin also founded four other companies, in which three have been acquired, including Fango, which was acquired by Grubhub. Let's hop on into the interview. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, look, I'm super happy to see um, you know you guys showing interest in the space and starting to build your careers, you know, in the space and so on. Because um, one, I, I think it's hard and it's been hard like plotting that path but also like you know if i was talking to my brother the other day and i said you know one of the things i've realized is like if you want to get rich then go to work and if you want to get wealthy then own something and one of the things that i've noticed is like you know for us in our community like people of color and and so on that uh there's been a lot of emphasis on like okay go get a good job go work here or so on and not as much emphasis paid on like, how do you go about owning something, whether it's through carry or whether it's through equity, you know, as a founder or so on. And so, you know, seeing real like multi-generational wealth being created, um, you know, through this process, it's sort of like this unspoken uh, sort of hidden gem <laughs> out in the world that we're now starting to uncover like, Oh, there's this opportunity over here where, you know, I can make you know, outsized returns given my level of intelligence and sort of opportunities and access. So it's awesome seeing you guys tap into that and sort of build a career out of it. Thank you. Uh, you started like four different companies and now you're working on your fifth and most of them are in the restaurant and dining space. What makes you so interested in it and keep on coming back? Yeah, it, I mean, it's kind of... <laughs> It's kind of through like random luck in in many ways. So in the first company, um, it really came down to uh, trying to solve uh, what I thought was an interesting problem. And I sort of found an innovative way to do it. And the original thesis was I was sitting in class and I thought like, oh, wouldn't it be cool if you could text message to have food brought to you in class? (laughs) And when, you know, this is 2006. So like actually like sort of a novel idea at the time. And, you know, because at that time, no one really had uh, applications in the traditional sense, no one really had, uh, you know, data. The way that I solved the problem was I built an application uh, for BlackBerry OS. (laughs) Um, And that application would take in an order from you, it would convert it to binary, and it would send a text message with that binary to a server. And then the server would basically decode that binary and then send a fax to a restaurant with your order. And I thought like, oh, this is like really cool. I just thought it was like a fun problem to solve and so on. Um, Didn't really think a whole lot about the business until later. Um, It turns out that like there's actually an interesting business around um, the, uh, um, sorry, there's an interesting business around allowing people to order food like to their seats in stadiums and arenas. And that's sort of like started to steer the direction of like where the company went. We went down that road. And then once we got into stadiums and arenas, you realize 
okay, there's a huge influx of volume like during halftime before the game and so on. So you need to have these integrations with lots of different softwares to make sure that the operations are efficient. And then you realize, oh, well, there's a whole bunch of other places that have these same softwares, which is like hotels and airports, casinos and other restaurants. And like that was literally what steered us into all those spaces. And then restaurants grew the fastest. And so that's really where we sort of doubled down. And then eventually Grubhub came along and was like, hey, like, let's merge these two companies together and attack this space. And that was sort of how we ended up at Grubhub. Um, if you look at the subsequent companies, like in many ways, it was very similar looking at um, opportunities where it seemed like you could create an innovative solution and that you could create an unfair advantage as a result. Those companies had differing levels of success, right? So like Vanguard was super successful from a financial standpoint and like innovated a whole bunch of things, all the like tablets that you see in restaurants and all that today, like we created all that technology, a bunch of patents. Like, so in many ways, like we were very dominant um, along those lines uh, and, and really impactful. One of the things I realized in subsequent companies is that, you know, anything that you go after that's really valuable, it's going to be contested. So it's not a question of like whether or not you're going to compete. It's a question of like, on what dimensions are you going to compete, right? And so you want to compete on a dimension where like you have this unfair advantage, like where you feel like you can kick everyone's butt in the world at this thing. And what it turned out was that given the experience in the food and like hospitality space, like that sort of emerged as something where it was like, arguably I knew more about this than anyone in the world, literally. And it's not necessarily like the toot your own horn. It was just like, I've spent 15 years building these systems, like from the ground floor up until today and studying them and investing in them and like building things that were successful and things that failed. So if I'm going to compete on something, like this is what I want to compete on. It's not like how in depth my machine learning, you know, knowledge is or like how much AI we're leveraging. And that's what sort of like kept us coming back to um, this general theme of uh, like the food and beverage space. Um, the last part I'll say is the problems are still really big in this space and they're unsolved. So if you look at, you know, our company today, we're basically providing these software solutions for restaurants and chains, connects all the data that comes into those restaurants, like lets them turn those into catering orders, into individual orders, into reservations and so on, right? That diaspora, when we talk about um, like small, medium businesses and these restaurants, I mean, it's 31% first generation immigrants. It's like one in five DACA recipients is employed by one of these uh, restaurants or chains. And so, it's a huge opportunity to make an impact on your own community in terms of people who look like you and who go through similar experiences and who are trying to like make their way in the States. But the other piece is, you know, the overall spend on food and beverage in the U S is like $1.5 trillion a year. And so like when you look at solving incremental efficiencies in that space and adding value in it, the numbers are huge and you don't have to, do a whole lot. You don't have to try very hard to make a really big impact from a numbers standpoint. So like those were some of the like metrics that just kept us coming back to um, to the space and keep us there today. Wow, that's pretty cool. I've been doing like some research on the food industry and there are like a lot of potential like ways to help transform that industry. And so like one thing that you mentioned um, 
during your answer as to why you work in the restaurant dining space, you described your company, Fango, which was one of the earliest providers for mobile food ordering. And with that company, you had a lot of B2B customers such as Madison Square Garden and University of Kentucky. How did you go about navigating the B2B landscape to acquire those customers? Yeah, great question. Um, we had this philosophy, like I think that formed really early on in Fango and even in this company that like everybody is somebody to someone. And so like this idea that you really wanted to treat everyone as if they were important because you never knew like who was necessarily going to be important to you. Um, and so I think there was a tendency sometimes for people to only value relationships where they saw a direct line of sight to what they wanted. And we just thought that that was fundamentally the wrong strategy. And so what that meant though, is that we met a lot of people who, you know, they were a school teacher in university of Kentucky or, you know, they were a school teacher in the local elementary school, but you know, their brothers, contractors, like best friend was special assistant to the mayor. And the mayor was on the board for Rupp Arena at University of Kentucky. And like the mayor could get you in for a meeting to be able to present the value uh, proposition that you were trying to create. Um, and in our case, it was a lot of situations like that, you know, because I mean, I was 22 at the time. I, it wasn't like I had an extensive network and everyone I knew was an engineer or, or blue collar, you know. And so a lot of it was literally just talking to people, taking a genuine interest in the things that they were working on and a genuine interest in, in their lives and, and sort of the goals that they had. And along the way, you would see these paths that would sort of illuminate that said like, oh, like here might be an interesting opportunity for me to one, make you look good by making this introduction, but to also add some value to this person in your network. And that was literally what happened you know, at Rupp Arena um, there was a woman I knew from undergrad, um, literally from like a fundraiser party. And four years later, we still kept in touch. She was the only person I knew that was from Kentucky. And uh, when I uh, moved to Kentucky and was sort of like starting to launch Fango, I reached out and I was like, hey, do you know anybody that you know can help us like find customers and like that we can interview and so on? She says, oh yeah, my dad's a special assistant to the mayor. <laughs> And so she calls up, uh, you know, her dad, the guy's name was um, um, Artie Green. And Artie was like, yeah, sounds awesome. You know, like he heard the pitch and so on. He said, great, let me introduce you to the mayor. We'll get you right in there. And, um, you know, he's like, it's up to you at that point. He's like, I can't give you the deal, but I can get you in the door. And, you know, got us in the door. We wowed University of Kentucky, put up great numbers for them. And then it was easier to go to Madison Square Garden and places like that and say, hey, look what we did for Rupp Arena. It's the largest you know, uh, basketball facility in the country. It was like 6,000 seats more than Madison Square. And we had done great numbers there. And so you know, Madison Square and other properties like that became easier sells than they would have been. Um, now, one thing I will say is at the time we had a competitor. It was a company called uh, Manja. And this is like where you know, some of the challenges I think arise with like pedigree and legacy um, in our communities where we don't have necessarily as much of an extensive uh, uh, like lineage or legacy of, uh, um, of like privilege really. And there was uh, this company Manja and it was started by the son of a gentleman who owned part of like the Phoenix Suns and he owned like a 
you know, a um, major league soccer team. And I think at one point he was either the president or the CEO of Madison Square. And so in that instance, you know, he's doing what I guess anybody, any father would do. He makes a phone call to say, you know, Bill, you know, my son's doing this thing. Can you get him in there to, uh, you know, make this uh, presentation and so on? And, you know, like most things, business is sort of a relationship driven thing. And so the people on the other side of those calls, they're always making this calculus on like, how is this going to impact me? How is this going to impact my career? And in many cases, like they don't want to rock the boat of people that they think have power or people that they want to sort of ingratiate themselves to. And that makes it hard. You know, even if you're there first, even if you've got better technology, even if you know, you might be, have a more compelling product, in, in some t- cases, like that can be the right answer to the wrong question. And so you kind of have to be careful of that, right? And you have to sort of navigate around it. But ultimately, I think if you're, um, if you have enough sort of fortitude about facing those opportunities, about continuing to care about the people uh, that you know create opportunities for you and care about the things that they're trying to accomplish, then you'll get enough shots on goal that eventually some of them will start going in. Wow, that's a great answer. It just really shows the importance of building valuable relationships. Would you say this also carried through of building your partnerships with building the leading point of sale platforms with Micros and Radiant too? Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Right. So, you know, micros, <laughs> micros is based in Columbia, Maryland, right. Um, which we were, you know, we're talking about Baltimore and sort of Maryland area. And so uh, where my family lived, uh, micros was literally like half a mile down the road. And what ended up happening was <laughs> my mom was like, Oh, there's uh, one of the students at river Hill, which is where my sister went to high school uh, my mom said, oh, yeah, one of the parents works at Micros. And I think he was in the, the chief legal officer or something like that at Micros. And my mom literally walked down to his house and knocked on the door. and was like, hey, my son has this technology. You should see it. <laughs> and, you know, you have to imagine that, uh, you know, that guy was like, wait a minute, who are you? Like, how did you get on my property and so on? Um, but, you know, through that relationship, we got in the front door and, you know, we uh, met with a guy named Dan Bell. And Dan was uh, overseeing um, a lot of the hospitality products for Micros, and Dan was awesome. He took me under his wing, and uh, you know, helped me to navigate the organization and get that partnership in place. Um, and on the Radiant side, um, I had some teammates from uh, from Georgia Tech, uh, a guy named Mike Algozer, actually, who came to work for us later on. Um, but Mike worked for Radiant after he, we graduated from Georgia Tech. He went to work there. I called Mike up and said, Hey, I'm doing this thing. Like, can you help us get in the door? And, you know, Mike was like, yeah, you're one of the smartest people I know. Like, of course I will get you in there. Um, and I think that's a real testament to, to, you know, when you foster these relationships, like it doesn't happen overnight. I mean, I, I knew Mike for six years before, um, that ask ever came up. Right. And so I think sometimes there's this expectation that, um, these relationships will start to uh, uh, like bear fruit immediately. People go into them on this very short timetable of like, hey, if I don't see value from this person in, you know, in 30 minutes, then I'm either not going to pay attention to this conversation or I'm not going to you know, uh, respond to their email or phone call or whatever. And you just never know. Like, you know, again, everybody's somebody to someone. 
And so if you treat people that way, just as a principle, then uh, I think there's going to be a lot more opportunities available to you than, than you'd find otherwise. So just to pivot off of what you said earlier about navigating around legacy and privilege, we know as minorities, it may be difficult to raise funding. Uh, we read one of your blog posts about being a Black founder where you stated fundraising is hard as a Black founder, but not impossible. And you mentioned that you've raised venture funding six times. So although I know there's no A plus B equals C to navigating the VC landscape, what would you say are some key learnings that may be, may be beneficial to others that are looking to raise funding? Yeah, totally. Um, so there's a saying, like, if you know the rules, then you can play. And if you don't know the rules, then you'll always lose, right? And you know, fundraising is no different. Like there is a set of rules there. It's like getting into college or any other thing where if you understand the question behind the question, then it will make your life a lot easier, right? And you'll see that you spend a lot less effort to get the same outcome. Um, you know, a great example, when I was applying to business school and I was kind of like, oh, I don't know if I'll get into business school. Like I didn't feel like I was very well positioned to do that, even though, you know, we had just... Uh, done the Fango deal and so on. It just Stanford always felt like this place, where, you know, it was just almost superhuman that the people that went there were just a different caliber. And I think that's also one of the challenges as a person of color as a in, in this space is you don't have great um, like grounding for where you sit on the overall spectrum, right? You don't necessarily have a great awareness uh, uh, for that. But that being said, I reached out to a buddy of mine. He had gone to Chicago booth and he says, he wouldn't apply to Stanford. Have you been to the campus yet? And I said, Oh, you know, I went there when I was looking at undergrad schools and like, so on, um, you know, I'm not planning on going out there. And he said, go to the campus. When you go to the campus, talk to a professor. When you talk to the professor, ask them if you're able to reach out to them and so on and so forth. And I said, well, why does that matter? Who cares? Like, you know, I just fill out the app, give my GMAT scores and my grades and like write my essays and see what happens. And he said, no, no, it matters. And I'll tell you, when the application came out and I filled it out, there was a checkbox on there and it said, um, have you been to campus before? Um, and there was a question of like, you know, what do you think was most impactful about, you know, Stanford and so on? And I was actually able to speak to like, professors that I had talked to that had helped me with my business that helped me sort of try to think through what was going to be the next steps sort of post Fango acquisition. And, you know, you come to find out that one of the things that schools like Stanford will evaluate is like uh, using whether or not you've been to campus as a proxy for how serious you are about coming. So you write this great essay about, oh, I want to come to Stanford. It's going to change my life, blah, blah, blah. But I've never been there. I've never talked to anyone but I'm convinced that this is the best school for me. And like, you need to let me in and I'll change the world. Right. And if you had never been through that process, if you didn't know anyone to sort of show you the ropes on it, then I could have just as easily been somebody who didn't get into that school simply because I didn't check that box. Cause I didn't make that, you know, $150 flight out to Stanford's campus to go do a campus tour. And fundraising is really similar to that where there's a bunch of questions that are being evaluated in the background that no one explicitly tells you. No one's gonna come out and tell you like, hey, like, you know, your unit economics is like the only number I'm looking at. Your growth factor is the only number I'm looking at. I don't really care where you went to school. I don't really care what your degree was. Like those things are not being evaluated, but you spent 50% or 60% of your, you know, presentation 
speaking to those metrics that don't matter to me. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's one of the things that you learn over time. Look, the, my first fundraise at Fango, I pitched 56 times, like literally 56 times to close that round. And I would argue the first 50 of those were like learning how to pitch. Cause I'd come in there and I'd all oh, the technology and Flavin, uh, the latency and protocols. <laughs> and the reality was like, you know, the investor on the other side of the table was like, I don't care. Like, tell me about your unit economics. What does it cost you to acquire a customer? Like how much does it cost to acquire a customer? And, you know, what's their lifetime value to you? How fast are you guys growing? You know, what does your team look like? And what's your plan for uh, building out your team moving forward? Those were things like I just didn't spend a lot of time speaking to. And so no surprise that, you know, I wasn't able to, you know, get the funding uh, at those times, like until I sort of figured that out. Um, so anyway, to your point about, uh, you know, in our communities, I think a big piece of it is the education gap on like, what are the questions that are really important that are actually being asked behind the questions you hear? And if you can answer those effectively and answer those well, then fundraising becomes a breeze. I totally agree with you. And the question behind the question is a huge issue in our community. Do you feel like that went away when you're three of your five of your companies have been acquired and you've been so successful or have you, or have you just felt it's, this is regular to me now? Yeah. I mean, it's a great question. So look, I, <laughs> I think I did have the belief that it was going to get easier. Right. Um, and that's, that's not been the case, right? Like I thought like, okay, you know, I, I did a successful company. I came through Techstars, like, okay, Stanford MBA engineering, like, and you go through this process of sort of like stamp collecting or like badge collecting, thinking that like that will make fundraising, uh, easier. And that really did not, uh, you know, turn out to be true. Um, what I have found is that my preparedness for what I'm going to encounter in that process, that is really what's evolved a lot. Because I know what to expect. And this is really similar to, you know, like I was, uh, you know, played lacrosse in college and, you know, you have these weight training days where it's like, oh, it just sucks. And you go in there, you got to put on weight and you got to get stronger. And, you know, the weight training never got any easier, uh, you know, from day to day, but you knew what to expect. And there was a certain like mental ease that came from like, okay, it's that time where like things are going to hurt a whole lot and you got to keep pushing through it and you know what to expect along those lines. And I think that's what happens with fundraising where it doesn't really get easier per se, um, but you know what to expect. Like I know the questions I'm going to get and I know that there's going to be a certain amount of bias and there's going to be a certain amount of like, you know, pattern recognition where it's like, oh, you don't look like the last seven founders I've founded or I've invested in. Um, and so you expect those things and you learn to sort of maneuver around them. You learn to hit some of them head on. And I think that in, in aggregate sort of makes the process more manageable. Um, but I do think it's like, it's probably just as difficult as it was before, but I just am more aware of how to navigate it now. You believe that black founders should stop stamp collecting and focus more on like finding a passion instead. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't agree more. Like, Here's the thing. At the end of the day, there's sort of there's math and everything else is an opinion, right? And when you come in there with real numbers and real metrics, um, to the point where it's no longer a subjective, right? And I think that's a key like caveat. Um, 
when that happens, like you'll get the money. There's going to be a, enough investors who are at the table that you're able to get that funding closed without too much issue. Now, if you come in there and it's close, <laughs> I mean, and this is not a new experience, I think for us and I'm projecting a little bit for you guys, like, uh, it's not a new experience that like, you've got to be three times better. That's the reality. Like it's never yeah. been any different. Like we've known that our whole lives. Like our parents have told us that since we were born. Right. And so you can't make it a close call coming in that room. Like you've got to have that level of uh, conviction and level of uh, performance in your numbers. That's not a close call. It's not even a question. Like this is an easy yes. Right. Um, I, I think that the only way to achieve that is though to really be passionate about it because you've got to summon this superhuman level of uh, effort, energy, and commitment. It's way too easy to just go take a job at Facebook or go to Google. Like if your motivation is fleeting, you know, they'll pay you five times more <laughs> than you'll make as a founder and give you, you know, free childcare and free lunch every day. And so like, if you're doing it to the level that you need to, to be successful, you got to really love it. You have to really be passionate about it. And, you know, for me, it's like the things that we build today, it's so much less about myself and so much more about, you know, the 14 million small business owners who are impacted by these solutions that, you know, the 300,000 uh, first generation immigrants who are running restaurants who like in many ways are getting squeezed and put out of business by some of the other platforms that, you know, are a little bit predatory. Like that's what gets me up every day. It's not like to pay my own bills, you know, it's to help them pay theirs and help put their kids through college and send them to places like Gilman and Georgia tech and so on. Um, and that's, it's almost like a life worth living, uh, along those lines. And that just lets you summon this superhuman, uh, you know, level of desire and level, level of drive. Yeah. And so you've had three companies acquired, right? I believe. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit more about the process of being acquired from the founder side? Like, for instance, were you actively looking for sellers? Did you help to integrate the two companies and so forth? Yeah. So like all three of them are a little bit different. So the first one with Bango, um, you know, we were actually looking at partnering with Grubhub. We had created a bunch of partnerships with other brands like uh, Marriott, Delta, um, HMS Host, like to try and attack different verticals like airports and casinos and so on. And so with Grubhub, you know, we, uh, we were looking for them to partner with us in the restaurant space. Well, it turns out the technology that we were providing was super compelling and they basically wanted it exclusively. They didn't want anyone else to have it. And so we said, well, we can't give it to you exclusively because we have all these other partners. And their response was, well, look, what if we just merge these two companies together? And we can just attack the space as a combined entity. And, you know, along those lines, like it made a lot of sense. They basically two days later put together a term sheet. The numbers made a lot of sense there. And so it was a decision that we made, you know, to go through with that, that transaction and so on. Now, I will also say, like, I was a little more naive about uh, <laughs> what happens when a company's acquired at that time. You know, I was 25, 20, yeah, 25 at the time. And so, you have this idea that, you know, there will be this like happy mix that comes out of the side, uh, 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 out of the other side of, um, uh, you know, merger. 
Um, but that's not really what happens, right? Like usually one, usually one company gets parted out uh, and then the other one, you know, continues on. And that's basically what happened, right? It's like our team, you know, the technology was stripped out, the team was stripped out and like bolted into this uh, bigger machine. And then that machine, you know, continued on. And so in subsequent transactions, I think I was a little bit more aware of like what to expect in a merger, what to expect in sort of an asset purchase and, and so on. Um, so that was sort of the first one. Uh, the second, you know, company we had acquired, you know, some intellectual property. We basically bought some technology from another startup that had gone under and we bolted that together to basically create a platform that was accessible. And we had a business that was creating great cash flows, right? It was generating a lot of revenue. Um, and it was growing like with very little overhead. I mean, it was like almost all margin. And in that case, uh, one of the customers of this product actually came forward and was like, hey, we'd love to acquire this if you guys are interested. And this was in the IoT space. Um, so we were building like sensor technology and database technology for writing that sensor data. And this was just a space that like, it was unclear whether or not we were gonna be dominant in that space. I think at that point, um, a lot of the customers had not defined the metrics on which they were going to evaluate solutions. And so it's hard to sell to customers like when you don't know how they're evaluating your solution. And in many cases, when they don't know how they're going to evaluate, they just go with brands that they know, like IBM or McKinsey or whatever. And so we felt like this was going to be the best exit uh, for this company um, without having to put in another sort of like five or seven years, right? So the highest return based on like the input energy. And so we got a great deal, you know, from the customer. It was like good multiple in terms of exit. And so we signed the you know, deal and they took over the technology and the platform and all the existing customers. And that was just like super easy, right? Um, along those lines, but none of us on the executive side had to go with the business. And so it was just, again, a very um, easy transaction. The last one um, with Farm Hill, I mean, that was a little trickier. So that company, I mean, I basically got brought in to, um, you know, try and write the company. It was a little like a bit unstable when, uh, when I came in and they were well, burning a fair amount of money. And so in that case, what needed to happen was we needed to stop the, the burn and we needed to, you know, improve margins and so on. So over a six month period, we basically went from, you know, we were burning almost 300K a month, I think when I came in. And we were able to bring that burn down to about 50K a month. We were growing revenues 11% month over month. We went from a 7% gross margin to 34% over the course of that six-month period. And uh, you know, in that type of business, we were providing uh, uh, culinary services for like corporate customers. So if you were like um, you know, a 150-person corporation and you were trying to feed everyone, we provided the technology layer and the food to feed all of your employees, right? To keep them happy and healthy and all those things. Um, the way that it worked from a billing standpoint was we would serve you for a month. We'd send you a bill at the end of the month, and then you'd have 30 days to pay that bill. So what that meant was I could have as much of as a 60 day float on the uh, revenues that, that I was uh, creating from that customer. And so as you found the company was growing, 11% uh, month over month, at the same time, our accounts receivable was growing. 
And because the company had had trouble sort of before I, I, I got there, you know, the ability to finance like a credit line or, uh, you know, a debt was going to be really difficult. And so we brought this decision, you know, to the board that said, you know, hey, do we want to finance a line of credit, you know, for this company um, or, you know, do we want to explore a sale? And so at that point, you know, the board basically said, hey, look, the company is stable to the extent that, you know, we want to explore uh, a sale. And so we ended up going down that road. And uh, there was a company, it's actually a competitor uh, called E-Club that actually emerged and said, hey, we're interested in this company and the assets associated with it. And so we were able to do a deal, um, you know, to make that happen. And so, you know, that was one where, you know, the company was more so sold than it was bought. Right. And there's a big difference, I think, in how the process goes, depending on what situation you're in. And there's a big difference also typically in the price, you know, like how much value you, you get from it. So those were kind of the three different uh, transactions. And you kind of tell like they were different in terms of how they came about. And they were also different in terms of just like the strategy. Thanks for recounting all those different stories, your acquisitions of your companies. Could you talk about how your awareness has grown with surrounding the IP you acquired some IP when you started one of your companies, the IoT startup. And even like when your company got acquired by Grubhub, the IP and your patents were installed into their bigger machine. Can you talk about how you got the patent started, how you patented the technology, and even how like it worked to make your company successful? Yeah, I mean, so, okay, let me just talk, I guess, strategically. Like, patents are super valuable. I think, look, there's two major assets in every company it's your people and it's sort of your your intellectual property and there's probably not enough attention paid to either of those in most organizations right um now i was i was really lucky because when i was in undergrad uh they had mandatory class that you had to take on patents um in engineering school and so i had taken this class which i thought was like super boring and i'd never use it but i did well in the class i paid attention and so on and when I had this idea that, you know, people should be able to order food from their phones, um, I called my mother. <laughs> my mom's also an engineer. Uh, and I said, Mom, you know, I have this idea. I think it's crazy, but let me just run it past you. She was always like my sanity check. And my mom said, like, oh, this is a great idea. I like it. And she says, oh, you should patent it. And I said, well, you know, patents are really expensive, right? It's like $2,500 to get a patent, which felt like all the money in the world. I mean, at that time, I mean, we've all been in college here. So, um, you know, many people have been in college and experienced that. It's a lot of money. And my mom said, uh, look, honey, if you write the patent, like I will pay the fees to get it uh, prosecuted. And that was literally how I got my first patent. It was like going through that process. Now, as it relates to like the technical piece of it, uh, I mean, I literally sat down and wrote the whole thing. Um, I got a book from Nolo and a couple other resources, and I just sat down and cranked through it. Um, from a process standpoint, you know, you go and you create a provisional, like that pretty much, you know, gives you a timestamp of, hey, this is when I thought of this idea. It's not fully flushed out, but I just want you to know that I'm working on it. And from the time that you file that provisional until your actual application, you have one year. You have one year to get that in the door. Um, and so I wrote the first version of the patent, like all the claims and like the abstract and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, again, this goes back to the, the, the part earlier part about networking. I had a teammate from 
uh, undergrad from uh, lacrosse who had left engineering school, had gone on to become a patent lawyer. I reached out to him and I said, hey, Craig, can you help me with this thing? I've already done the claims. I've already written the abstract. I just need somebody to bless it. Just look at it and make sure I haven't missed anything that was important. And Craig was awesome. He came through and like, you know, spent a couple hours like tweaking this and working on that and so on. Um, and through that process, we were able to get that first patent prosecuted. And so the subsequent processes like got a lot easier because you kind of been through it a couple of times. But um, to your point about, you know, competitive advantage and just market value as you go through acquisitions and so on. I mean, these are basically like government endorsed monopolies. Like that's basically what a patent grants you. And to the extent that you can use and leverage that, I mean, it's a huge asset. In many cases, like you're not going to beat a competitor because you have more money. You're not going to beat an incumbent because you have more talent. But if you have patents and intellectual property, like that serves in many ways to help sort of hold, you know, the ocean back long enough for you to run through. Um, now, the one thing I did learn about, you know, the patents is they are only as good as your uh, ability to enforce them. <laughs> and so the government's not going to step in and like enforce that, you know, people don't use or don't infringe in your patent. And I'll, I'll tell you one story I thought was, uh, was a real turning point in my life. Um, we were exploring a partnership with major league baseball advanced media. This is like 2009, I want to say. And the idea was that, you know, you'd use our technology and our app to order food, uh, in the major league baseball stadiums. And in 2000, uh, major league baseball, like found that different teams were creating websites that had different standards. And so they decided to consolidate all of their, uh, digital media rights under a single company called Major League Baseball Advanced Media, or like BAM. And so this is the group that we were working with. Um, and there was a gentleman there who was the president of that organization, and he reached out about us like working together. And so we started going down this road of you know developing our partnership, and we entered into this like agreement where we were going to do a joint venture and all those kinds of things. And then all of a sudden, like they ghosted. Right. They just like we didn't hear anything from them and they wouldn't respond to emails, wouldn't respond to phone calls. And so we had like no idea what was going on. But, you know, we had to keep building our business. So we just went on with it and so on. So about two months later, I got an email from an investor and he says, oh, congratulations. Like I just saw the news and he had attached an article to uh, to <laughs> article to that email. And the article says Major League Baseball releases in stadium like food ordering app called FanDirect. And if you remember, our company was called FanGo. Wow. And so what had happened was, uh, you know, BAM had basically ripped off the entire application, like screen for screen, and had, you know, inserted it into a pilot with, I think, the Philadelphia Phillies, if I remember correctly, and, you know, proceeded to launch this out in the marketplace. And so I called up, you know, this president and I said, you know, hey, yeah, I was 23 at the time. And I said, you know, hey, like, you know, this is our technology. Like we have an agreement, you know, we have patents in this space. Like we're going to sue you guys, you know, and uh, <laughs> I'll never forget the response. The guy says to me, um, it's a British guy, a British accent. And uh, he said, you know, last year we did $410 million 
And he said, you know, you might sue us and you might win, but my guess is that you're going to spend so much money trying to fight us that you go out of business before you see a dollar from uh, suing us. So my advice to you is just to move on. And I was pissed. I was so upset. And I called my father, which is like what people do. <laughs> I called my dad. I'm like, dad, we need to sue these guys. You know, they did this thing. And, you know, I'll never forget my father had this long silence on the phone. And it was kind of that like, oh, uh, yeah. So they're kind of right. <laughs> you know, and, you know, you think that the legal system is this thing that like comes in to save you when you're right. And it's like, no, no, you got to go prove you're right. And that costs money. And if they've got more money than you and they can file for more continuances and more abatements and so on, then you know you can find yourself tied up in a legal battle for five, 10 years as a startup. And you can't afford to do that. And they know that. So in many ways, like, yes, did you have a patent? Yes. Were they violating those rules or those laws? Like, did was there recourse for you to have? Yes. But were you able to actually go and enforce any of that in our current state? Like in that state, we couldn't. You know, so we had to just walk away. Now, fortunately for us, there was a lot to the technology that, you know, we didn't share with them. We told them a ton about what we did, but not a lot about how we did it. And what that meant was that they built their technology, they built their technology incorrectly. They had tons of problems with, you know, latency and like communication, signal being dropped and like all of these things. And so we were able to go on to, you know, a successful outcome anyway. But it was just a great lesson of like, yes, patents are great but they're not going to enforce themselves. You still got to have these strategic barriers to help protect yourself that don't just rely on the court system because that's going to be really expensive and very much skewed towards like the bigger players and incumbents. Wait, so, so did they purposefully steal your company idea? You know, I don't know what their intent was. I mean, you know, look, I, I think, I think it's easier for big companies to kind of convince themselves that they had an idea all, all along or that like they were going to do it anyway. And so in many ways, like it wasn't stealing. And so they tell themselves that story. I thought that we were very like clear. I mean, you certainly had agreements in place as far as like non-disclosures and non-competes and so on, but we didn't have the ability to enforce them, you know? Um, you know, so I, I don't, again, I don't know exactly what their intentions were, but I probably wouldn't go into deals with the same people again. <laughs> Either way, you know, I think, you know, it's just, look, the way I think about it, I'm 35 now. And, you know, the life expectancy for the average like guy in the US, like assuming you're not using opioids and that kind of stuff, it's like 78 years, right? So like, arguably, there's, you know, another, you know, 35, uh, you know, 40 plus years in like my working career. And so it doesn't really make sense to try and optimize on a two year time window by like being immoral or like having low integrity on like some deal like chances are i'm going to skew again chances are we're going to do a deal at some point or like there will be some common interest or common uh you know connection and so like in my mind i'm playing this long game of like again treating people the right way everybody's somebody to someone and that's just not how you want to do business there's plenty of ways to make money in business you don't have to do it by like being deceptive um so anyways yeah that's it's just a lesson for me well, thank you so much for breaking down the importance of intellectual property and how it can be a way to create um, wealth. So we just have one last question. 
Um, and it's about your current company, Eat Geek. So I've been doing like um, some re some research in the restaurant and dining space. So it's kind of like a coincidence that you also work in the space. But with <laughs> doing research, um, I found that the food delivery market is projected to become a $200 billion market in 2025. And a trend that is emerging within that market is ghost kitchens. And I was wondering, is this a type of restaurant that you plan to capture with your current startup? Yeah, so it's a great question. So right now, like I would say the market is really fluid. Like it's not clear um, how it's going to evolve. And the reason why is because if you look at the big players in the space, I mean, they're kind of like tectonic plates and they're all moving around right now. And it's not clear which ones are going to crash into each other and which ones are going to, um, you know, sort of float away and, and so on. Um, Jeff Bezos, he had this great answer um, about, you know, when people were asking him, like, Jeff, you know, what's the future going to look like? And like, how are things going to change? And so on. And he said, you know, I don't focus on what things are going to change. I focus on which things are going to stay the same. Because that lets you build your business on foundation that's really stable. And things that are not going to change are like customers will always want more selection. Customers will always want things faster, like so on and so forth. And I think the restaurant space is no different where there's just like sort of fundamental principles here that um, it's unclear whether or not the existing platforms are actually following those principles, right? And just to give a little more color to it, um, you know, if you, if you go to like San Francisco, you climb to the top of the Salesforce building and jump off, like there's a period of time for which it looks like you're flying. Right, like on a short enough timetable, like it looks like, you know, oh, the person's flying. And it's not really until you extend the timetable like fully that you see like the ultimate outcome of that decision, right? Like the ultimate destination of that person um, is probably going to be like somewhere on the sidewalk, uh, you know, at the base of uh, a Salesforce building. Um, in the same way, like on this really short timetable that we've been looking at ghost kitchens and we've been looking at like DoorDash and Grubhub and so on it looks like they're flying. It looks like the economics of these businesses are solid and up and to the right. And it's really unclear as to whether or not that's reality, like whether or not they're in fact flying or whether or not it just looks like that because of this truncated timetable. And so like, as it relates to ghost kitchens, you have these fundamental economics in that business that are really hard to change right now, like delivery economics, where it's like, it's great that you're, you know, creating economies of scale by mass producing food, but are those economies of scale enough to offset the cost of delivery, right? So even if that sandwich is like, you know, $6 uh, as opposed to $8 to produce, um, does that offset the $7 plus payroll taxes, plus Medicare, Fed, like, you know, FICA, MedCal, um, that you need to pay to this driver to go and deliver that $6 sandwich? Is there enough elasticity in the customer base where they're willing to pay you, you know, $10 or $12 of delivery fees for, you know, a $6 sandwich? And that's not really like, I don't think there's a lot of evidence to support that model. Um, one of the things that I've looked at is if you look at overall spend for consumers on the different delivery platforms and you correlate it to, um, fundraising events or like IPOs of the different platforms, right? So like when Uber Eats went public or Caviar, when it was part of Square as a public entity 
or DoorDash after like subsequent raises, what you'll find is that there's almost a one-to-one -one correlation between a fundraising and the customer growth. And it's almost entirely going into customer subsidies. And one of the things that you notice on the other side of it is like when you know Uber Eats was getting ready to go public and all of a sudden they needed to actually show like solid economics or improved economics and cut their, their sort of spend and their cost. When they stopped spending towards subsidies, their usage fell off a cliff, right? So one of the things that you can draw from that is that this customer activation, like customer retention is super sensitive to subsidies in a business that already has very, very tight economics. And so to your question, I don't know if it's clear yet whether or not ghost kitchens solve those problems in a meaningful enough way that it actually negates some of the other challenges. Um, and so for us, like, I think we're gonna stay fluid <laughs> and the way we look at it is like, great, either way, businesses are gonna need these tools, right? That effectively every restaurant, every kitchen, every caterer is effectively a small e-commerce business now. Their business is basically driven by a number of digital platforms, whether it's OpenTable or Yelp or DoorDash, Grubhub, you know, uh, GetQuick, GoSelly. Like, I mean, there's dozens of these platforms. And at the end of the day, each one of these merchants, each one of these owners, operators is going to have to navigate, optimize, and manage each of those platforms in collective to run their business. And so we've been spending a lot of time just building the, those tools because in our mind, sort of, it doesn't matter what permutation, like the end food production takes, like they will need that. That's part of the puzzle that's not going to change, um, you know, along the lines of sort of what, what Bezos was saying. And so that's kind of how we're tackling the problem, if that makes sense. Essentially, like if ghost kitchens do emerge, you will still have a way to serve them. That's exactly right, right? If ghost kitchens emerge, they're still going to need to acquire customers. They're still going to need to track the customer journey across multiple platforms, optimize their spend on each platform, whether it's DoorDash or whether it's Uber Eats or Postmates. Um, and the solutions that we're building right now make all of that possible and make it easy. Um, and so that's where we're, we're choosing to focus. Okay, thank you. Um, so I know that we are over time, but thank you so much for not dropping, of course, and then just for your time in general, uh, we really appreciate all of the knowledge that you've been able to share with us from your experience as a founder. And yeah, thank you. Yeah, of course. Thank you for tuning into our podcast. Please make sure to subscribe, like, rate, and share this episode with a friend.